Welcome to Explore, Teach, Conserve, or the ETC podcast by the University of Minnesota Extension, where we talk with people about exploring, making discoveries, and solving problems to better manage our natural resources, and we share ideas to help you learn more and get involved. This is an older episode from when we used a different title, The Naturalist, but the conversation and ideas are still fresh. If you enjoy it, we hope you'll subscribe and listen to more episodes of Explore, Teach, Conserve, or the ETC. Hey, I'm Santiago from U of M Extension, and this is The Naturalist, a podcast that aims to explore the various topics within the world of Minnesota natural resources, all while trying to capture great stories and talk to people about the environment. On this episode, we get a chance to talk to John Geisler and Nick Wagner from Boulder Lake Environmental Learning Center, getting the inside scoop on what it takes to run Boulder Lake. Later, we'll have a chance to talk to Angela Gupta, an educator from University of Minnesota Extension, all about emerald ash borer, what you need to know, and why this is such a troublesome pest. All that and more here on The Naturalist. I'm uh, John Geisler. I'm the program director at Boulder Lake Environmental Learning Center, which is a partnership of UMD, uh, Minnesota Power, and St. Louis County Land and Minerals Department. Uh, I've been here for 10 years now, uh, full-time, and prior to that, I was a grad assistant at University of Minnesota Duluth in their environmental ed master's program, and it turned into a full-time job. So uh, it's a dream dream position for me and it's really been a lot of fun. Going back to the early days, how, you know, how was the transition from taking what you got in the classroom and applying it to something like that? Yeah, so I, uh, I worked for four years prior to that at St. John's Arboretum as a assistant director. So I had some natural resource management and education experience prior to getting my master's. Um, but then, yeah, it was hit the ground running. So I worked, I, uh, while I was a student, I was kind of learning learning the position, and then uh, our full-time director got a different position, and so I was lucky enough to be at the right place in the right time. Uh, <laughs> but in the early days, we've really grown, so uh, the first few days, or the first few years, it was, uh, people always said, oh, don't let grass grow in our parking lot, because there was very little traffic, and we were um, just starting to get a program that uh, kind of was building. Um, prior to that, it was kind of every two years the program got reinvented every time a master's student was out here, so we didn't have much continuity, and it was almost like just one program a month. So um, we've gone from about 800 participants a year to over 10,000, um, so it's really grown. That's a huge jump. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> 800 to 10,000? Yeah, so we're probably, formal participation is about... Uh, 3,000 per year and then we have a lot of informal um, recreation users so they come out for skiing or snowshoeing that's the other 7,000 but we've now got signage and interpretation along the high use areas so we're starting to reach those people it's kind of that initial um, line into I guess what our mission here is on connecting people to natural resources and if you 
if you recreate in an area and start to get to know to know it, just enjoying it as a user, then a lot of times those people will come in for classes later. So it's kind of the first step into hooking people in. <laughs> okay. Okay. So in terms of uh, the participants, you know, um, I guess take me through a, a regular year. You know, do you have a lot of classes coming in from schools, or is it mostly um, college-related students, or is it a good mix of that? It's a it's a pretty good mix. Uh, we have so spring uh, we get a lot of K twelve field trips, which people kind of typically think of an environmental learning center. You have just a bunch of kids <laughs> kind of constantly right. flowing through. Uh, but then we transition June. We do a lot of teacher professional development. So we do uh, anywhere from dynamic forest, looking at how forests regenerate and are managed, to watershed workshops where we do. We take people both chronologically and geographically through watersheds and looking at the relationship of people to the land. Uh, we do renewable energy workshops. So uh, kind of a high emphasis on teacher professional development and that can include college students that are in the education program just getting a start on how do I integrate the outdoors into my classroom. Uh, and then we go into fall, uh, summer and fall, there's some college summer courses that come out here. And uh, we do a lot of with Master Naturalist program, uh, volunteer training. Uh, and then there's, it's just kind of a mix. There's some recreation, formal recreation and adult programming for like landowners that want to know how to take care of their land sustainably. Uh, so it's a, there's always something new on the horizon. It isn't just one thing that we do so it's kind of, it's a very enjoyable in that regard all right yeah. well you seem like you got a lot on your plate for the year how many people work here actually so it's me and uh nick is the intern currently um and just then we two? just us two and <laughs> we do a lot with um uh volunteer support we've done i think it's 15 cohorts now the master naturals program so that's kind of our solid base that we use okay to like we ramp up the programs and then all those volunteers kind of slide in and help us deliver, okay. uh, which has been outstanding. Otherwise, it'd be, there'd be no way we yeah, could pull I mean, off some of the... From what you're telling me, it sounds like you got a lot of people coming in yeah. on a weekly basis. So um, we'll actually get in a little bit more into Master Naturalist later. But um, yeah, yeah. one thing I really wanted to talk about was this in interesting situation you find this uh, environmental learning center in is that, you know, it's kind of very unique due to the way you, you all manage, right? You mm -hmm. have the educational aspect, um, and then you were telling me before that you have uh, a power-related system attached to it and that you uh, manage the, the forest for economical use as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, what are the challenges associated with, with running, you know, this center in that sort of way? And, you know, is, you got to put on different hats every single day to deal with the different issues and challenges. Yeah, so it, it is pretty unique to have all these different agencies work. So you have a for-profit power utility, you have county, um, and then the university, all, all kind of coming together. And I think it's really worked out well because a lot of times we see nature as kind of a, a preserve or off disconnected from our daily life but I think what this place really does well is show the show how it can be connected and also benefit economically and ecologically at the same you can do it well uh, in a regard and 
So I think it's really been a strong point for Boulder showing that connection <laughs> between, okay, we can utilize some of the resources, but how can we do that sustainably and be good, wise stewards? So I, I think it meshes better than people think. You know, a lot of times there'll be like, for instance, we had a harvest right at one of our major trailheads that a lot of people use for skiing. And uh, first there's this initial reaction of, whoa, what's, what's <laughs> happening here? You know, what, where's our forest going and what are you doing? Um, so there's a lot, there's a need for education on, okay, that was in a 50 year plan. <laughs> and, and then the next year they see 30,000 red and white pine seedlings going in. So they see, okay, okay, they're regenerating what they used. And then, um, so I think it's a good story to tell and it's, something that a lot of people don't get to see, you know, right. so. I know you said that you have a lot of concerned people yeah. in the area anytime you make changes, but has it been challenging to try and make sure everybody's on the same page? And yeah, it's, uh, there's always concern, which is encouraged, and people are paying attention, which is great. It's a benefit to me to see that people are, well, wait, <laughs> is this good for the land? Um, but it is, it's a constant I guess it's a constant educational opportunity to kind of, okay, why is this happening? Take me through the steps. How could this show me the mosaic of land in your plan and, and show me the old growth stands that are designated that and, um, and show me the biodiversity that comes from kind of creating these new habitats or fresh kind of do-overs. And uh, there's also the, a lot of education about okay this area was fire disturbed you know repeatedly prior to Euro European settlement and show me how this has been um, kind of tending towards shade tolerant species like the balsam fir and the spruce and mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's been a good even though you get the knee-jerk kind of negative reaction it usually turns around to a, po a positive once we have the communication about it so do you, have a, do you have any stories about any very enthusiastic community members trying to to like stop stop yeah. actions or no like usually because it's usually um reactionary okay. you know to whatever has happened so um right. yeah i don't try to think of any Nothing's coming to the top of my head right now. Just that's to, right. Yeah, I just, yeah. Just want to see, you know, I know some people are very passionate. Yeah. That. That's why we have the Master Naturalist program to begin with. But, um, I mean, uh, going forward, you were talking about how, you know, it's important to have the Master Naturalist here to kind of make this place function. Yeah. So, um, is, it, is it difficult for Master Naturalists to get involved or is it kind of just like... No, very easy. Okay. I mean, we make it as easy as possible. Right, right. <laughs> how, so, how does this happen? How so... So a lot of times, so we've run a lot of the initial trainings here. So we've, since 2009, we've done 15 cohorts and there's 255 grads from there. And they, I think they get a really strong connection to this place, um, spending a week here. So a lot of times we do the week format where they camp out just here on the lawn and they're, um, they really want to give back to this place or they want to, um, contribute in some way and so it hasn't been hard for me to find like I'll put all my monthly blast of volunteer opportunities and usually they get filled you know just people oh, okay. kind of just plug into whatever um, they're interested in and we've had some you know back to our first cohort that are some of our most active 
volunteers to date. So I mean, you get a few from every cohort that want to plug in that are local. Yeah. So I'm looking out here at, out of the the main office here, and uh, I can just picture this place in the summertime. Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, so we have yeah the wind, the breeze just comes off the lake, and we have people set up their tents right here. So they just roll out of their tent and into the classroom downstairs, and it's pretty cool. And Wednesday nights we have a potluck. Uh, and then we do astronomy and we watch the bats drop from the bat houses and it's just it's just a cool cool experience yeah are uh, you are you doing any um master Nature's programs here this year yeah me uh, i think the second second week in may and then in august it's awesome i'm glad you know it's always interesting to see how master naturalists get involved outside of you know, their education opportunity and yeah, see yeah. where they take it from there. Um, I was at a uh, graduation a couple of weeks ago where, all, you know, it was a, a week intensive class. Yep. And um, everybody there had these really great ideas for projects outside of, you know, of the class. You know, yeah. You had yeah. Uh, one person who wanted to put together a kind of um, interpretive um center piece of okay. this uh, old abandoned building at this new land okay area that, that was designated in her um her town okay um and you know we had some people who uh wanted to work with bees and in the conservation center kind of do a a program to kind of initiate some beekeeping in the area so oh, you know, that's it's always awesome. awesome hearing what people are doing yeah um, yeah and stuff like that yeah yeah it's phenomenal what I mean, because they all come with these awesome skill sets, and I think the program just kind of empowers them to okay, I can, I can plug in somewhere. I don't know what, why that barrier is there, you know, before the program, but it just the program has a way of making that happen. I think that that transition to oh, I can do, you know, I can plug in here and do something. So, um, so I guess closing, closing thoughts um you know what's the what's the most rewarding thing about being involved here you know when you go home every day yeah yeah so my wife always asks him if i'm really working out here and i i always <laughs> i always say yeah yes i am but i really i love it you know it doesn't seem like work because it's uh the people that you get to work with all really care about the land and the water which is really rewarding and i think all of our programs kind of push that connection, build that connection of people to the land, you, you know, whether it's their first time out snowshoeing or this is their 50th hour of training, you know, they're, they're all making advanced steps to connecting with the land. So it's just, I think that's the most rewarding piece is seeing, seeing our ripple effect, you know, somewhere else or, um, yeah, that's what keeps me ticking. Now we're going to jump into a conversation with Nick and hear about his experience working with John at Boulder Lake. Nick just recently started, but he's already diving into the program responsibilities associated with his position working with John. My name is Nick Wagner. Um, I am the intern assistant director here at Boulder Lake Environmental Learning Center, and I'm an environmental and outdoor education major at University of Minnesota Duluth. So, okay. Yeah. A lot of words. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, John was telling me earlier that it's pretty much you two right now, right? Yep. So yeah. how, how how is that going? You know, in terms, of, is that what you expected coming into this position? Yeah, I 
had experience with John. I met him two years ago through a course at UMD. He teaches the um, technology and the outdoors and GIS courses for outdoor majors. Um, so I kind of knew he was by himself out here, but um, it's been pretty awesome to see how much he does by himself and then just with me here like supporting that and able to get a lot more work done. So it's pretty wild though, definitely <laughs> yeah. full spectrum of what I'm doing from like computer work to, you know, creating maps and posters and flyers and marketing to grant writing to being inside, <laughs> doing the actual programs that you created and stuff like that. So pretty exciting. Coming in here, uh, you know, what was one of the programs you really wanted to work on? I'm a pretty big advocate for conservation and responsible use of, you know, resources in our natural world. So trying to come here and learn as much as I can about, you know, the you know, conservation education that goes on here and how we teach correct resource management to youth. Because I kind of, I want to do some field work after this for the next couple of years and um, kind of go out and do some like actual conservation and field work. So if I can learn and teach about it now, then it's going to help me later on. So oh, for sure. Um, I'm also a super big birder. So anything, yeah. any birding programs are pretty fun. Okay. <laughs> Is there any programs in the, in the springtime that, that you very really looking forward to um yeah the paddle making that's coming up has been something on my mind that i'm really stoked about to kind of lead and teach people kind of the you know the craft of making a paddle um and then i'm creating a, a program called the um uh, boulder phenom boulder phenomenal photography day so we have a a birding day and then on the same day we're gonna have photographers come out and for the you know eight hours of the day they have to go out and try to get the best picture they can no matter what's going on that day <laughs> so um, kind of tag teaming along with other people that'll be out here birding um, for like the competition aspect so and then also just trying to um, I don't know I've been just kind of thinking about other programs that I want to create and try to lead with my time here and I hope to stick around over the summer and into the fall while I'm still in Duluth and just help out and be here with my yeah. time. So, I guess I guess my last question, unless you want to add anything, but my last question would be is like, what do you tell your friends that you do out here? Um, I I don't know. <laughs> I I kind of I kind of just give them. I I just say I'm doing it all. So, you know, like as I was saying earlier, you because it's just the two of us, you really kind of have to, you know, go from everything from you know, cleaning the dishes after programs to, you know, making snowshoes or teaching about birds like we did the other day or, um, you know, we had the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Um, they came for their annual outdoor rec conference this past week. So, like, you know, just really being on top of your game just to educate a, a huge spectrum of individuals, you know. And I think, like, in the major, you know, you're kind of, I worked a lot with the rec sports outdoor program at UMD, so mostly teaching college students, but now it's pretty like full spectrum. Like, you know, over the weekend I was educating, you know, birders from across the country to last week when I was educating a bunch of, you know, um, employees for en energy companies from around the U.S. So it's like pretty cool to, you know, see all that work from my education, my higher education, you know, come to light here, you know, all the skills that I've learned and knowledge that I've gained, so. That was John and Nick from Boulder Lake Environmental Learning Center. Side note, when I asked John about any interesting moments or experiences from his uh, time at Boulder Lake, he had this to say. 
on our grand opening of our trails, we had a wolf kill right on our ski trails. And someone thought we had set it up just as kind of a this is very realistic, right? Uh, well, that's how you learn, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can learn more about Boulder Lake by logging on to www.boulderlake.org. I will add that they have a pretty awesome site that you can check out and see all the information you need about different programming and how to get involved at Boulder Lake. This part of the podcast is called Know Your Invasives, where we take the time to talk about invasive species that are currently affecting biodiversity in Minnesota. This episode, we're talking about emerald ash borer. I'm Angela Gupta. I'm University of Minnesota Extension Forester. I'm office out of the Rochester Regional Office. So emerald ash borer is an invasive beetle, originally from China, that was introduced to the United States in about 2002 into the Detroit metro area. It actually came in before then, but that's when it was first identified. And... The unfortunate thing about this, there are several, but one is uh, Michigan has lost so many ash trees to emerald ash borer that Minnesota now is the state with the most ash to lose, essentially. And we have emerald ash borer in the state of Minnesota. We have been very aggressive in Minnesota with our early detection using forest pest first detector volunteers and others to really look for that uh, invasive beetle so we can find it. And then we've been very aggressive with our management once we found it. So that's been really great. But a few key attributes you would look for if you were going to say, go out and run around, look in your neighborhood for emerald ash borer, which can be done really well this time of year. So who would have thought that, you know, March, February were good times to look for emerald ash borer. But a couple of key characteristics, there are no leaves on the trees. So very handily, we can see deep into the canopy. There's no leaves uh, as an impediment to our view. So what we are looking for high up in the canopy are often woodpecker pecks. So emerald ash borer likes to land the beetles, the adult beetles in summer fly around. They look for ash trees that they feed on the leaves, but then they find those leaves. They land up in the high canopy. When the female lays her eggs, she lays those eggs inside the bark, often in the high canopy because that's where she's hanging out. And then the woodpeckers will feed on the larvae. So they feed on the larvae, again, often high in the canopy. So not where you and I hang out when we walk the dog and go for a jog and all those things. We typically only see the first, you know, eight feet of a tree, whereas emerald ash borer will start essentially colonizing a tree at the top. So it makes winter detection really key. And so when we do volunteer surveys, uh, we often have volunteers go out this time of year and they take binoculars and they just look for declining ash trees and look really specifically for woodpecker pecks. And then with a pair of binoculars, without ever stepping on someone else's property, because you don't want to do that, like <laughs> you can look for woodpecker pecks and then you can often see bark cracks and you can look for the S-shaped or squiggly galleries inside those bark cracks. And it's hard to see all of that from the street, but if you, you see a couple of those things, it's enough of a red flag that, that quite frankly, we would want you to report that. Uh, and so if you were going to report it, we would request that you report it to the Minnesota Department of Agriculture's Arrest the Pest Line. And that is can be found at the Minnesota Department of Ag Arrest the Pest website. There's also a, an email address you can find at that website, and there's a voicemail number. So you can leave a 1-800 number if you'd like. 
Um, but then a professional will follow up or one of our forest pest first detector volunteers and see if indeed that's a true report or if you found some other lookalike because woodpeckers, of course, will peck on any number of things, just include the emerald ash borer. Why is it such a big issue? Like why, if, if it left unchecked, what could potentially happen to Minnesota forests? Yeah, excellent question. So emerald ash borer is 99% mortal. So it kills 99% of all native ash trees. And again, Minnesota has the most native ash trees in the United States. So we have a lot to lose. Most people will first kind of experience emerald ash borer in their neighborhoods. So we got Dutch elm disease. We did not learn very many lessons from Dutch elm disease. We lost a great deal of our elm overstory and canopy in the 70s to Dutch elm disease, and we replanted that elm overstory to ash. So in many of our Minnesota communities, we have a really high percent of ash in our community planting. So boulevard trees, yard trees, that kind of things. And really more than was there before, more than would normally be there more than is there proportionally in nature with that absence of of Dutch of elm trees. And so most people will really feel the heartache of emerald ash borer in their neighborhoods when the, the tree off their deck dies or the one in their front yard dies or their neighbor's tree dies. Um, and so that can be, and we're starting to see that large scale mortality of ash trees in the Winona area on the um, I-90 corridor in southern, southeastern Minnesota. We're starting to see it in southern Rochester where we've had emerald ash borer for a few years. Now, that's not the forested. The truth of the matter, homeowners and community members have some really good management tools, including insecticide. So if you have an ash tree and you want to treat it, there's some really effective insecticidal treatment methods. You can inject right into the tree, pulls it right up, and is very effective. Our forests, we have, quite, we have just far fewer management options. And so really what is likely to happen in our forests is large scale die off of emerald ash borer. Um, now there are Minnesota and Minnesota Department of Ag has been very aggressive in putting out biocontrol agents or um, so agents that that prey on emerald ash borer and a variety of life forms to kill it to reduce its total population. And that's probably the best we can hope for in the forested environments is that we can just keep the populations low enough. Now, whether it's low enough to kill enough beetles to have ash trees survive is not clear. Northern Minnesota, because of the hard winters that we normally have, which of course we're not having right now, um, has an advantage too because at this point, emerald ash borer has not been found in zone three and plant hardiness zone three, which is right now Northern third of Minnesota. And so long as that persists, it, they can't overwinter here. But as plant hardiness zone three creeps north, and it has been creeping north, and it is more, very likely to continue to creep north, then our exposure to emerald ash borer increases. So what that means is that we're really looking at a large-scale mortality of ash trees and a conversion to other, other plant communities. Um, now, normally, in healthy ecosystems, that would be other native trees. But at this point, we know out of Ohio and Michigan that what they see come in the wake of emerald ash borer, so you have your ash canopy, your mature trees die, you get a huge flush of invasive plants coming up underneath that. So in southeast Minnesota, I would expect to see lots of buckthorn, um, right. which is not what we want, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So the recommendation to woodland owners and to land managers is really to prepare for that 
to get in there and actively manage your forest to get rid of your invasive plants, maybe to preemptively remove and sell your ash, and then make sure you're planting or allowing to regenerate the species that you want to come back. And then it can be a manageable transition for most ecosystems. But it's, it's pretty dire. Uh, also, northern Minnesota has what are called black ash swamps, and those are predominantly ash. And in those systems, ash trees act as like a hydrologic pump. They, they keep the water moving out, otherwise, um, so they keep through respiration. So when the tree is leafed out, the, the tree is photosynthesizing, that photosynthesis takes respiration and that takes the tree moves water from the soil through the roots, up the trunk, out the leaves. So it just acts as this hydrologic pump, which keeps that environment, that black ash swamp, from getting so wet that trees can't grow. And so when those ash tree die, trees die for whatever reason, they're clear cut, they die from ash decline, they die from emerald ash borer, the hydrologic pump stops working mm. and they swamp out. And so they literally go from forest to like cattails because okay. trees can no longer survive. And those are maybe the hardest spaces to manage with emerald ash borer on the horizon. That was Angela Gupta with information about emerald ash borer. And you've been listening to The Naturalist, a University of Minnesota Extension podcast. To learn more about the Minnesota Forest Pest First Detector Program, you can log on to www.myminnesotawoods.umn.edu. Special thanks to Twin Musicom for providing music for this episode. Thank you for listening to The Naturalist, and have a great day.